0: Alright, we're going to continue in our discussions of our mission as a church together. Um, You can take your Bibles and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be there in a moment. I have a handout I will need help with. Um, Let me see. Kreft Brothers, can you guys help me with the handout? We'll be referring to part of this as we go, highlighting just one main aspect, one half of that sheet. And again, we'll be to that in just a few minutes. Last week, we defined the mission of Subarode Baptist Church this way For His glory, Subarode Baptist Church is striving together to develop word centered followers of Jesus Christ. This evening, we're going to talk about what it means to be word centered followers. We talked about what is the mission of the church, and this is not unique to our church. This is not. I looked up Last week, a couple of businesses and their mission statement, and they're, they're all over the place. And, you know, some are creative and some are trying to be punchy. That is not what we're doing in the church. We have a mission given to us by our king. And we want to be able to apply that and live that out. For God's glory, we're making disciples among those who are saved and among those who are not saved, right? Jesus commands every single one of us, if we're followers of Christ, to be involved in this mission. His mission for you focuses our lives not only on winning the loss, that is a vital part of it, but also on the ongoing health and growth of the believers around you. Perhaps if you think about it and you evaluate your life, maybe you're weighted too much to one or the other. Maybe it's just the circumstances that God has put you in. But either way, both parts of that command are the command, make disciples. It encompasses the entire mission of our church. Now, here's the question. What is the challenge then to that mission? What is the challenge to the mission? What can be some of the ways that we're hindered in obeying Christ and fulfilling this mission? Well, sin. It's called spiritual death according to 2 Corinthians 2.15. Our own sin hinders us. Satan, he seeks to steal the seed. In that parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, we're told that some of the soil falls on hard ground and the birds come and take it away. And then when Jesus is explaining that parable, he says the birds are Satan, the enemy who steals away the seed. Ourselves, we are prone to to live for ourselves and ignore God in our lives. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. I've shared these verses with you before, but I think they're important for us to hear. It says, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. He died for all that are his. Therefore, all have died. We as part of his body have died to ourselves. He's gonna apply that. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you hear what that passage is saying? You exist as a Christian for him. He died for you. You're to live for him and follow his commands. And then there's another obstacle, perhaps a challenge to the mission, is suffering a lot in chapter 2, we see it a lot in 2 Ch- in Ch- Timothy, uh, this idea of Paul, he's speaking for Christ. And in every chapter of that book, there's at least two named opponents of the gospel and of his ministry. Sometimes others, opponents of the gospel, will make this mission difficult. So how are we then supposed to accomplish his mission? I want you to think about this for just a minute. We have a super Natural calling in this command. This is bigger than our jobs. It's bigger than our families. It's bigger than any of our other temporal interests. It's a supernatural calling. And as we've talked about, we face supernatural opposition. Okay, so if we just stop there, how then can we accomplish such a mission? No wonder we are easily distracted from it. But God has provided for us a tool, his supernatural power, to obey and accomplish this mission. What are those tools? Well, that's part of what we're focusing on in this Habits of Grace series here at the beginning of the year. We identify three, but there's lots of different parts to those three. Our three that we always talk about are the word, prayer, and his people, Around the word and prayer, right? Those things are all interconnected. So we say often, we preach the word, we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, and we see the word. Because this is the supernatural means by which we have life. I want you to hear 1 Peter 1, 23. It talks about how we came to life. This is just one of the many passages that does this. 1 Peter 1, 23 it says, since you, God's people, have been born again, not of perishable seed. Seed that springs forth into fruit. Peter's using this image for what is coming through this seed. You've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And then he makes that clear through the living and abiding word. So Subarode Road Baptist Church is striving together to develop word-centered followers. We like to say sometimes we want to be a word-dominated church. You don't need the opinions of your Sunday school teachers or your life group friends or your pastors. You need to hear God's words. It has the unique power to build the body. Now, we need to think about this carefully. This word that God gives us has an intended meaning. The author has intent in what he's saying. In every single book of the Bible, in every single type of literature or genre, from cover to cover, all right? You can get it right and you can get it wrong. That's why as a church family, we are committed to studying the Bible together. That's why your pastors are committed to studying as they present God's word to you. Jesus says this, I want to illustrate this in Luke chapter 10. As he's beginning the Good Samaritan discourse or discussion, Jesus says to the lawyer, he says two questions. He says, what does the law say? So you need to know what it says. And then he asks him a second very interesting question. He says, how do you read it? What is he asking in that question, do you think? He's saying, do you understand it right? You might know what it says, but do you understand what it means? Both parts are important. You see, there aren't many interpretations of the Bible, as is sometimes thrown out there as reasons to say Christianity is not helpful. There aren't many interpretations. The problem is there are many misinterpretations. And we're taking them as, well, somebody's saying the Bible, so therefore, no, no. Our job is to understand the word of God rightly. This has been a problem from the beginning of human existence. Think about Eve's answer to the the serpent. Does she say what God said? Or did she add more? Did she shade it and then reshape its meaning by doing that? absolutely are we anything unlike eve in that way then do we ever misread misapply misinterpret the word to suit our ends sure we do and when you think about it who is the most knowledgeable the most skilled misinterpreter of god's word that we see all throughout scripture who is it it's satan himself right Think about Jesus and Satan there in Matthew chapter 4 as they're discussing. Satan brings up passage of scripture after scripture after scripture. And he's twisting them. It's not that he doesn't know the scripture. It's that he's not coming under the scripture. He's using the scripture to accomplish his ends. He's the father of lies and he can use scripture to do it. Do you see? The problem today in our world isn't that there's so many interpretations of the Bible. There's so many misinterpretations. Our job is to understand it rightly. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. This is a command that God gives to his people. He says, you shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you pastors were at a conference this past week called Simeon trust and it's really just a commitment to help train pastors to study and understand how to exposit and then preach the word of god as faithfully as possible to do what deuteronomy 4 2 is saying and some of the language they use a common term they use is you need to stay on the line of the word what did eve do with that imagery did she go above the line or below the line did she add to it or take from it what did she do she added to it right So our job as Berean type believers is to say just what the word says and to trust that our king knows what we need to hear. If we're going to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us, we need to understand how God's word changes us and how it changes others, both believer and unbeliever, right? So how does God's word change us? Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. I want this lesson this evening to be practical for you. It's not just to give you a philosophy of how the Word of God works, but to help you as you think about how am I to read God's Word. That sheet you have is a half sheet. Hopefully you can tuck it into your Bible. Um, do we have any extras of those, guys? Could I have one? I actually forgot to keep one myself. I want to make sure I'm referring to that. All right. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. you know this verse, these verses. Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. How are we changed by God's word? This is an important question. Have you ever wrestled through that? Right? I know I'm supposed to be changed. We believe the Bible is about life transformation. How does that happen? What am I supposed to be doing? I think oftentimes, if you're like me, you, you sometimes uh, read your Bible or you have in your past and said, I, what am I supposed to do? I, I don't know how this is supposed to work, these devotions. I'll just read the Bible and see what happens. I think we can be more intentional than that if we think about it carefully. We look at how God's word works in Scripture I like how John Piper says and summarizes this verse. He says, beholding is becoming. Beholding our God is becoming. It's part of the change. I read within the last couple of years a book about preaching. And as he's encouraging preachers and what they're seeking to do, he says in preaching, you're seeking to lead God's people to worship. He says, because worship is change. I want to flesh out what we mean as we work through this, this evening. But here's what we see in the book of James. Just because someone has seen God or knows about God doesn't mean they're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Genuine faith in Jesus Christ moves directly toward action. That's what James is about. It works. Faith that works. Faith that obeys. Genuine faith takes action. So when we hear those kind of reductionistic phrases, we're not just saying my goal today is just to see Jesus and know facts about him or about my God and that's it. That's that's how I'm going to change. No, no, no. True biblical worship is always accompanied by the desire and intent to obey God, to submit to him as we see him revealed in the word. Love for God equals obedience to him. Therefore, our goal in Bible reading is not just to see God, know facts about God, store up a list of things that we know God to be like, but to see him and respond in worship, in trust, in love, in allegiance, in obedience. This is all a part of what it means to worship him. That's all of what it means to behold him. Now, how do we apply then his word to our lives? This is really, we're going to focus on this sheet. There's lots of questions here that we have under the understanding the Bible. What do we learn about God? These are really the same kind of questions that we ask during our sing, praise, and prayer time that I've encouraged you with over the last several years. But I want to think about tonight specifically applying the Bible. So the bottom part of your sheet How do we grow in our understanding of application of the word? How do we connect it to our lives? Well, first we can ask, how does God apply his word to the lives of Of his people. I want to give you several examples. So you're going to need to move along with me. This will help keep you focused. Uh, We'll turn to several different passages. You can turn to uh, Job 38. That won't be our first example, but I want you to uh, look at that one in just a minute. These are things I've been wrestling with. How do we apply God's word helpfully and faithfully to God's people? Do we ever see God demonstrating himself, applying truth to his people in certain circumstances? So, so let me give you several examples. Think of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God says, God is speaking to Moses out of that bush. This is a unique commissioning. This is a miracle in front of his eyes. God says, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He talks about their suffering, that God has heard that and responding to that in compassion. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is balking. Because he's afraid. he is uniquely positioned with his upbringing from the house of Pharaoh to go back to Pharaoh. God is speaking to him from a bush that is not being consumed by fire. And he says, "Eh, I'm not a good speaker. In chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. And here's God applying his word to this man's life. Listen to what God says. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What is God doing to help Moses get over his fear? He's saying, this is who I am. I am the creator of your lips. I make people able to talk Or able to be dumb. I am God. And when Moses sees that, what does he do? He goes. He goes. What did Moses need in that moment? A pep talk about how to speak effectively? The effective speaker. He needed to know who his God was. Right? God applies his attributes to his life and says, Go, because I'm God. I'm with you. I'm commanding you to go. I want you to go to uh, at Job 38. We've, we've talked about being there. This is a long book. It's a fascinating book if you've never studied it. It takes some patience and understanding. But I, I want you to think of what's happening in this book. The setting of this book is... There's not another book of the Bible where at the beginning, God, as the divine narrator, through the divine narrator, through the spirit, says of a man, he is complete. Like God says about Job in chapters 1 and 2. He says it more than three times. Job is upright. So when we see Job begin to suffer, here's what we're asking with Job. Why? Why? And that's what's over top of the whole book. And that's what all of the speeches between his friends are about. Does Job suffer because of sin? Is it a cause and effect relationship, right? That's religion. What is God doing? Job is in grave agony. And he finally crosses the line with God, accusing him and saying, you owe me an answer. And what astounds me as I think through this story is what God says to this man to get him into the place of humility and repentance and dependence. God never answers his question. And yet Job is satisfied. So I want you to look at what God says that satisfies this suffering man who is recognizably suffering in injustice. What helps this man? In verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, if you're going to deal with somebody who's suffering, do you think that's the first word of encouragement that you would give? (laughs) It's not what we would think, is it? God doesn't say, don't worry, Job, I've got this. God goes through a litany of discussions. Do you know who sticks the stars in the sky and pulls them around by their tail? Do you see where the mountain goats go and their their babies are born? I watched that happen. What is God doing to answer this poor man's suffering? What is he doing in these chapters? He's saying, I am God. There's none like me. None like me. What is he doing? How is that application? We need to know who our God is. That's what we need. When we see God for who he is, we get in our place like Job does in chapter 42. We shut our mouth and we trust our God. Look at what he says in chapter 42, verse number four. He's quoting back to God here, and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Beholding is becoming Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God did not answer his question, but he doesn't need it answered anymore. God doesn't answer why, he answers with who, right? You can trust me even when life doesn't make sense. That should inform the way we think about how the Bible works and applies to our lives, Think about Isaiah, preparing for ministry. We know this passage well, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I want you to go to a different part of the passage than we tend to look. I want you to look down at verse number 9, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. We usually spend our time at the beginning of the chapter looking at God's description of himself. But I want you to hear the task that God is sending him for, what he's preparing him for. And how he gets him prepared. Isaiah 6 verse 9. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing your message, Isaiah, but do not understand. Keep on seeing it, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah knows what God's commissioning him to. You're giving this word for judgment. They're gonna hear the truth, reject it. Their ears are gonna be closed and they're gonna be condemned by this. This is a hard, hard task. Go preach and everybody's gonna hate you for preaching it. That's the task. And Isaiah recognizes it in verse 11. Then I said, how long do I have to do this? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. They go into exile. That's the hard job of this prophet. How does God get this man ready for that? It's at the beginning of the chapter, right? He gives him a vision. Beholding is becoming. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he brings Isaiah to the point where God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, here am I. Send me whatever you ask. What gets Isaiah to that point? Seeing God for who He is. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. We looked at this passage last Sunday. It struck me as we were talking about this in life group, as I was thinking about this lesson. How do we apply the word? Here's the questions this chapter, this these verses are asking us. How do I keep my life free from the love of money? from being drawn and controlled by money. How do I choose contentment instead? Money is great. It's powerful. It draws me to put my trust in it, right? How will I fight that? Here's what the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrew, says. The Lord is my helper. Here's what you need to know. God will help you. God will do what money can't do for you. You don't need to fear any man, any situation on this earth. God is your helper. Do you see how he's applying the scripture, how God is applying the scripture to contentment? Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll come back to this later, but I want you to turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 12. And I want you to again think of the circumstances of these believers. Again, we have this theme of suffering all throughout the book. And if you're talking to a friend who's going through a really hard time, what are the kinds of things that you say to them? It's going to be all right. This will be over soon. I'm here if you need me. But what does Holy Spirit inspired Peter say? And where he turns the focus. Verse 3. Okay, you're going through a hard time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that how we tend to counsel our friends and other believers? You're going through a hard time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the way we tend to think, is it? But isn't that what God, through the inspiration of the Spirit, says they need, and therefore we need? Absolutely it is. I want you to think about in our practical experience as a church family, what is the most encouraging to you when we go through a psalm on sing, praise, and prayer nights? I know it is for me. It's when we start gathering together and from voices all over the congregation, we hear people saying and we write it on the board, this is who my God is. This is who he is. That helps me when I come to the point, it does apply to our lives. And sometimes the passage tells us something to do. But when I start here, it prepares me to be ready to obey. I need to know who he is. Matthew Harmon writes in asking the right questions. I'll I'll quote this in a second. I want you to see this Um, again. Largely, your handout comes from this book. It's four questions for understanding the Bible and then four questions for applying it. This is an excellent book, an easy read, simple. Something you can leave in your Bible and read uh, your Bible with these questions in mind. Okay, we'll talk about them in a moment. This is another simple book uh, I read in the last few months. How to Eat Your Bible, not my favorite title, but it's fitting into an Old Testament passage. Um, I ate your words is the idea, how to take it in. So Matthew Harmon writes about application. A common problem we face when we think about applying the Bible is that our view of application is too narrow. We tend to think largely or even exclusively about what we should do. In response to what God says in his word. Now this is indeed an important aspect of application. But the Christian life is about more than what we do. He continues. Since the goal of reading and applying the Bible is whole life transformation. We need to make sure that we apply the Bible to our whole lives. Not just our actions. Now hear me carefully. I'm not saying it doesn't tell us what to do. But not primarily. Not always. Sometimes not at all in some passages. So our mind has to not just try to microwave a meal, you know what I mean? And say, well, I know what I'm supposed to do today. That, that's not how it works. Let's talk about that for a minute and think through these four questions. There are some dangers we need to be aware of when we give into the thought that the Bible is primarily about changing my behavior. I don't think I've done application until I know what to do. Three dangers I want to highlight. Behavior modification, though our lives and behavior needs to be changing. I'm not arguing against that. Behavior modification alone falls short of God's purposes for his word and our lives. Think about it. The Bible was not written to reveal or to fix our lives. It is not a self-help manual. It is not a vending machine. It is not a... A genie of the lamp. The subject is right there in the first line. In the beginning, God. The last book is all about the victory of God. It's not a written set of Dr. Phil type prescriptions. And so often when we're in a hurry, that's kind of what we want. A hallmark greeting kind of just, just give me something to make my day go better but the book is about our God and his glory. And if we soak ourselves in his character, I promise your life will be transformed in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. But you've got to go through the process. Secondly, <clears throat> a second danger, behavior modification alone misses the true problem. The Bible says what about us is sick and desperately wicked. Our hearts. Our hearts, right? If we're reading only to find something to do, we may be revealing that we believe God will be pleased with behavior modification alone. God has commanded us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of us. God wants to reshape how we think And what we love and how we behave. So, our third danger is behavior modification alone misses genuine hope for change. We're here in January. Did you make any resolutions? How are they going? Have you abandoned some of them already? What about the one about reading your Bible? Have you hit some bumps and you've given up? Sometimes this comes because we don't know what we're supposed to be doing as we read the Bible. We can't microwave our spiritual growth, no matter how much easier that would seem to be. Think of the Pharisees. They thought the Bible was only about behavior modification, didn't they? Clean up the outward. And Jesus says, you're full of dead man's bones. You're blind guides leading the blind. He said, of the scriptures they they knew since they were children, you don't know them. You don't know what they're really about. They're about me and you've missed me entirely. They're vipers looking to promote their own pride and self-righteousness by comparing themselves with others. It's like golf. If you want to feel good about yourself as a golfer, find the worst guy on the course and watch him play for a while. You'll feel like at least I'm not that bad. But that's, that's how we live the Christian life so often. That's not what God is intending to do with his word. So how do we apply the scriptures from passages which do not directly tell us what to do? Four questions that I want to equip you with. What does God want me to think or understand, As we said at the beginning, Satan blinds the eyes of the natural man from seeing the truth about Christ. But when we're made alive in Christ, all of that changes. The author of the book comes to reside within us. He convinces the world of righteousness and sin and judgment. We're given the mind of Christ, we're told. And though even we're tempted to... Think in old, unspiritual ways. We have the ability to know God's word and respond from the heart. We have a new heart. Think of Paul's admonition in Romans 12 two, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your behavior. Is that what it says? The renewal of your mind. Do you think Paul doesn't care about behavior? That's not fair to conclude. He says it starts here and it moves here and then it moves here, right? To be conformed to this world means to think, believe, desire, and act like those who are still lost in their sins without Christ. The world is constantly seeking to pressure us into its mold of minimizing God's commands, trying to discredit him in our own hearts. We're drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. We're tempted to believe the world's lies, aren't we? And the farther we get away from God in his word, we start to think, well, maybe the world has a point. God's kind of out of date. His ideas are kind of silly. That doesn't seem very nice to not let people do what they want to do. Of course we would think that if we're far from him. We studied the book of Judges this week and the prologue in verse chapters 1 and 2 tell us two things. In chapter 1, Israel failed to draw out all the people to push out, to obey God, to push out all the pagans and the paganism in chapter 1. And guess what they're doing by chapter 2? It isn't that they're just accommodating the paganism. Now in chapter 2, they're worshiping their gods. The Bible uses graphic language. It says they were whoring after those gods. Why? Why? They accommodated living next to them, right? How much does that sound like us? We'll play a little bit with our sin or let it be near us. It's not going to affect me. I don't believe in that. And before long, we don't believe much about God at all. We're not walking with him. Second question, what does he want me to believe? Now, there is a difference in this second question from the first. What is it? Well, I think this parable of the soils is important. I want to read the second part of that parable from Luke chapter 8, verse 11 and following. The seed is the word of God, Jesus explains. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes. He takes away the word from their hearts like the birds so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root They believe, they understand, they give assent for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. And then the comparison against or the contrast with the good soil. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit. With patience. That's what we mean when we ask this question what does God want me to believe? This is my convictions about the word. What am I holding onto and truly believing? Can you say you believe something if you don't act on it? Right? If I set my kids up on a shelf and say, trust dad, jump off of that shelf, if they won't jump, do they trust dad? Maybe they're just smart and they know it's pretty high. (laughs) But if they know dad and they keep their eyes on him, they'll come. James tells us the devils believe and tremble. They understand who God is and what he says, but they don't believe like the good soil described here, do they? They merely give mental assent. That stood out to me so clearly when we were working through Mark's gospel. Which individuals had the best answer to that ongoing, running question who is this man? Who was it? It wasn't Peter and the disciples. It certainly wasn't the Pharisees. It was the devils. They said, truly, this is the son of God. Or son of David, have mercy on us. They recognize who God is, but they persist in their rebellion. We want to do more than just know facts about God. So what is this asking me to think or understand? What does God want me to believe? To change about my beliefs? Third, what does God want me to desire? This question aims more directly at the heart, what Jonathan Edwards would call the affections. He saw our affections as the spring, the source and power of our actions. Our desires are central to our affections. Think about how we see this illustrated so often, so well in the Psalms. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants after you. God, you are my God early, earnestly, intently will I seek you. I'm convinced you are what I need. We're responsible to cultivate the right kind of inclinations. And God will even tell us how we're to feel about certain things. Our emotions are manifestations of our desires, right? The Bible tells us, be angry and do not sin. David says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Right? He's talking to himself, not listening to himself. Number four. Now we come to the point, what does God want me to do? Some passages prescribe actions that we're supposed to do. They're easier to preach, to be honest. John 13, Go love other people, that's easier to preach than 1 Peter 1, right? But that's because it's easier for us to just be told what to do and go do it. But there's danger in that. Like we said, it's easy sometimes to just give mental assent or to just go with the flow, the actions, right? As a parent, sometimes aren't you most worried that your child is obeying, but not from the heart. And he's hiding their rebellion, his rebellion. God wants all of us as so we conclude, there's an encouragement we get from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We can turn there as our final passage that we'll look at. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Here's something for you to do, work out, you put effort into this, your own salvation with fear and trembling, but here's the encouragement, for it is God who's actually working in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Paul begins by explaining our responsibility, but what we see here is that God produces within us the desire to obey, right? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Help me not just to be a hearer, but a doer of your word. Second, God then gives us the power to obey. So how do we accomplish his mission? We need to understand how the word changes us, Specifically, then, we need to know how to apply it to our lives. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll move into, we have a very short members meeting to do this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak in a way that is clear. We can understand you. And yet we know it is work. We have to give mental sweat to this. We have to think carefully. There's a way to know what your word says, but not understand what it means. There's a way to know what it means, but not be willing to obey it. Lord, help us to know how to apply your word to our lives well. May we truly grow as we seek to behold you and become more like you and submit to you and obey you. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.